the moment has arrived. I'm Tom Dickinson, and what you are hearing right now is a podcast about Doctor Who, and that podcast is called The Moment. On each episode of this podcast, I am joined by a guest, and we chat about a particular moment from anywhere in the history of Doctor Who, and that guest tells me why that moment is of such particular interest for them. This week, my guest is writer and podcaster Moises Chuyan, and we're talking about a moment from the 2015 Christmas special, The Husbands of River Song. This moment actually dovetails quite nicely with another moment we talked about earlier in the season, namely the moment that I chose from 2008's Silence in the Library. Although Moises's moment takes place long after that one from the Doctor's perspective, it actually precedes it from River's perspective. You can listen to Season 2, Episode 4 of The Moment for more on that. But as for this moment, it comes at the very end of an adventure with the Twelfth Doctor and River, which leads up to them being in a restaurant on the planet Derillium, with a gorgeous view of the planet's famed singing towers. The Doctor knows, and River suspects, that the night he and River visit the singing towers is the last night they will ever spend together. River's next encounter with the Doctor will spell the end of her life. At the very end of the episode, the two of them discuss whether there's any loophole, any last way to cheat fate, and that's where Morsessa's moment falls. The moment that I picked is very much the the culmination of a multi-season, multi-doctor relationship between the Doctor and River Song. Wind stands fair and the night is perfect. And it's something that when you least expect it, not only encapsulates, but always, and is the pinnacle of their relationship when you need it the most. But I think it is one of the best examples of Stephen Moffat as a writer at his best. That is a song. Doctor Who Christmas specials at their best. And really, it's it's one of my very favorite episodes of the show. It's something that covers a lot of the Doctor Who so, basics in terms of the elements of the episode. Assuming tonight is all we have left. I didn't say that. But this How long culmination of the whole episode itself. Is a night on Derillium. The moment itself is 24 their 24-year date at the Singing Towers of Derillium. It's really something. It's, it's highly regarded among fans, I but I feel like it could be almost underrated. Mm. It allows for some of the, the most nuanced acting. It's lovely and touching, and the part of all of us that loves the Doctor, hates the Doctor in, in different choices that he makes, uh, they make, rather, you know, after we've got some kind of screwball comedy, it's something funny. Hijinks oh, and transposing of roles between the Doctor and River, where suddenly Who's have you been thorough? It's not easy, you know. He does have twelve faces. He is the companion. Code name: Damsel in Distress. And not the other way around. Apparently, he needs a lot of rescuing. This is the kind of stuff that makes you really love this character, who has worn many faces and lived many lives. This is the Doctor at their best to me. What is it here that encapsulates all there is to love about the Doctor? Is it something that the Doctor is doing in the scene, or is it the kind of circumstance he finds himself in? Because there's a lot of different ways that the Doctor is defined. A big thing for me is the deeply felt compassion and empathy. The fact that the Doctor cares, the Doctor is kind, this is a stellar example of that, where it's not just here, this is going to be our last couple hours together. Save the day, you always do. No, I don't. Not always. Before you're gone, River, this is finding... Times end. The closest version of a happy ending that exists. Because there's no such thing as happy ever after. It's really wonderful. It's just a lie we tell ourselves because the truth is so hard. And when the doctor gets affectionate and tender... Hello, sweetie. 
and especially coming out of the mouth of the thespian as talented as Peter Capaldi. There's such precision in the silences, in the small tweaks of his facial expression, in, in performing these moments, you know, these last moments that we're going to see River Song. Unless, hey, you know, uh, crazier things have happened. She could come back in some way or another. Everything else. But I think that would that would cheapen this. And that is always sad. Things have to come to an end. But everything begins again, too. And that's always happy. And of the various things that have to come to an end, you know, there, there's uh, the conclusion that we don't like, facing up mortality, but cherishing and relishing the good things about life. It works really well for me personally, as somebody who grapples with a lot of that kind of stuff on a regular basis of what am I doing with the time that I'm afforded on this planet as a mortal being? Some people live more in 20 years than others do in 80. Am I making the most of it? It's not the time that matters, it's the person. You know, I, I hate the social media <laughs> inflicted notions of things like FOMO and trying to live a performative life and try to focus on on seeking an authentically lived, you know, something that's substantive, something that's worth other people remembering. And that's that's so much what this moment in particular is about. It's not just the end of a sweet love story. And this is the thing that I cite when people try to tell me that they don't like Stephen Moffat as a writer and he doesn't know how to stick landings. And this isn't the only example uh, that I would cite, but this is, this is one of the chief examples. Hmm. This puts such a clean, nice button on that entire relationship between River and the Doctor. Yeah, it's, so, it's so interesting. There's so much in this episode that pays off things that were discussed in previous River episodes generally. You took me to Derillium. Yeah. To see the singing towers. But most specifically in Silence in the Library. What a night that was. Some of that maybe down to some amount of planning, but a lot of it seems to have been improvised. Yeah, it's these are all the pieces that he had on the board, and now he gets to bring them all to the end point on the board. And so how's he going to string them together? He doesn't have to invent new pieces. He's just creating the creative tissue. Yeah, nor does it seem just like a rote checklisting. Yeah. It's an actual, he strings them together into a really great story that, you know, as you point out, has a lot to say about the character of the Doctor and the kind of person that he is. An interesting kind of dichotomy that you you just singled out was the notion between like social media performativity versus the sort of authentic living in the moment. And I'm curious to know where you think that the Doctor kind of sits in terms of that because to me, it seems like he embodies a lot of both of those. He's a man that has a lot of... I'm the doctor. You know, braggadocio. And, and if you don't like it, if you want to take it to a higher authority, there isn't one. It stops with me. But he also, he's looking for something authentic in the universe as he goes traveling. The thing I find fascinating is in the in the cell phone, social media era that we live in now, everybody's always online. The doctor, however, you know, with the exception of when he's being broadcast doing surgery on a, on a despotic tyrant to the entire galaxy. That's your husband. Listen, you are being watched by four billion people. Aside from that, he is just kind of in the presence of whoever he's in the presence of and often people don't know what the doctor's face actually looks like because the face changes and so the entire construct of the character has been cloaked in this beautiful kind of doesn't have to be on Twitter or Facebook. Mm. The doctor contains multitudes in the same way that I think we contain multitudes in the way that we choose to present ourselves online in public. We're choosing which version of all through our lives the identity and that's card okay that's good you got to keep to flip moving out like the doctor so does long as you remember all the people that you used to be and the doctor is able to be proudly not online i hate computers and refuse to be bullied by them to not have an at symbol attached to him wherever he wants to not have an at symbol attached to him it, it's so interesting because this this episode does play with like how the doctor presents himself to river you know he does this little it's a 
down when he enters the TARDIS, where he pretends to be impressed by it. I know where you're going with this, but I need you to calm down. The fact that it's bigger on the inside. My entire understanding of physical space has been transformed! Gloriously hammy, um, and at the same time... ...torn up fur in the air and slumped to death! I love that it was Peter Capaldi who got to do that. Yes. Because he has that long personal association with the character and the series. Whatever. That was the additional little layer of icing that I didn't expect. I don't know, a caramel swirl. Mm. Uh, I don't know how to how to best describe it like dessert. Uh, but th- that's what it was. It was fun, opulent, not necessary, but incredibly enjoyable. Mm. And then likewise, um, River shows a different face of herself to the doctor because the doctor is, you know, seeing... Is this what you were like when I'm not... Not what? A whole different side of her. You're talking about murdering someone. I'm not. I'm actually murdering someone. In this kind of her dropping certain pretenses, having certain other pretenses up. And then only at the end of the episode where all the identity confusion has fallen away and they they have this moment together in the restaurant on Dorelium. That's kind of when they are finally just themselves with one another. They're the most sincere selves. And that's an interesting thing to see after after all the screwball comedy that led up to it. And one of the things that I love, I, I host Q&As at conventions a bunch, and I've worked with Alex Kingston a few times. Oh, cool. But the thing that, that I got into the first one that I did with her that I was most excited about was being able to talk to somebody who has worked with virtually all of the modern doctors hmm. and the, the differences in, in what it's like working with each of them and then focusing on Peter and asking what it, what it was like doing this episode in particular. It was really lovely, and and this is me paraphrasing her, but she said the you know the the episode up until that last bit is lovely and fun and great and everything, but that she particularly relished sharing that moment, that culmination of the character with an actor who is so incredibly in command of his tool set, like Capaldi is, that everything he is doing on Derillium just feels effortless. Hmm. And she appreciated sharing that with an actor who who wasn't, you know, younger, nothing against the other doctors she had worked with, but an actor of some maturity who had lived a variety of lives. And I thought that was really beautiful. I'm not as encyclopedic about the behind the scenes, the, you know, the trivia kind of stuff about the show as, as a lot of other people are, but I, I, I like knowing that. Like, that's one of those sorts of subliminal things that I like carrying with me in rewatching this episode and various others is getting to to feel that relationship that again no slight to the other actors mm. um, but that is just fundamentally different because of the some of the shared life experiences that Alex and Peter have from being actors of of near generations so in the context of Alex Kingston's work on the show as River, prior to this episode, her previous appearance had been in Name of the Doctor as sort of the data ghost post-library uh, River. In return, he saved me to a database in the biggest library in the universe. Alongside Matt Smith. Left me like a book on a shelf. Didn't even say goodbye. And in some ways, that seemed at the time like it might have been the final send-off of the character. I'm curious to know that in the time between that episode and when this one aired, whether you felt like her story was resolved and whether you were thinking that there was a need for her to come back, or I'm curious to know where your headspace was at when you were approaching this episode. It, It didn't feel like it was done. It didn't feel right. It didn't feel settled. And there's all kinds of speculation, and I don't know that Moffat has necessarily, you know, said on the record, you know, what the what the truth of the matter is in terms of when he was definitely going to leave the show. That doesn't matter to me. Mm. Uh, but what matters to me is that this episode made me feel right in thinking that he wasn't done with it either. He wanted to close those loops. Mm. He wanted to give satisfying conclusions to the connections of the spoilers in the Blue Diary. And uh, the previous appearance, it was fine. 
but it did not feel like it earned being her final appearance on the show. And, and you mentioned that you feel like this has earned that and that you almost think it, it might it might cheapen it to bring her back. I feel that it would. It is really a perfect conclusion with a perfect grace note to it. I mean, would I love the 13th Doctor and River Song to get up to some trouble in radio dramas from Big Finish? Sure, that would be great. But when it comes to the show itself, leave it here. Yeah. And there was a time, I believe, uh, when Moffat was intending at one point for this to be his final episode on the show. There was a period where he hadn't decided whether he was going to come back for another series, which turned out to be Peter Capelli's final series. And he wrote this in in part to be his swan song on Doctor Who. How do you think it would have served to kind of cement his legacy on the show if this had been the last we had seen from Stephen Moffat? I think it would have been great. I have difficulty measuring minor degrees of greatness. Hmm. The thing that I find is that as, as a whole season, and that's not to say I don't really love uh, various episodes in the season that that led up to this Christmas special. I overall like the arc of the season that follows this one better. Hmm. I'm glad that we got the series 10 that we got. Pots. Hmm. Yeah. I'm glad we got Bill Potts. Bill Potts. Big, big fan of Bill Potts. You wanted to see me. So yeah, I, I could not live with myself if I said that I preferred not having Bill Potts to having Bill Potts. To jump back to something you said a little bit earlier about how this speaks to the doctor as a person. You mentioned that this is a gesture of kindness uh, for someone who's really dear to him. And the doctor can kind of be thought of as sort of an agent of kindness. The 12th doctor in particular has kind of an interesting relationship with that concept because Laugh hard. famously in his in his final uh, episode run fast has this line right before he regenerates be kind laugh hard run fast be kind but it's also kind of interesting because the 12th doctor didn't start off as a doctor that you would necessarily characterize as the kindest of doctors i'm his cara yeah my cara she can so i don't have to so i'm curious to know how you feel this moment kind of sits in that overall arc and how you feel about the way that character was introduced and and developed and the relationship to that concept of the doctor being you know emblematic of kindness i think seeing him start out more brusque more grumpy Mm. and warming and softening back into the sweet ripened fruit of a lovely agent of kindness, as you put it, that we want him to be. I think it works well as an arc. And I I feel like he starts out a little bit coarse. He starts warming up and then bad stuff happens to Clara. But I strongly advise you to keep out of my way. And he goes cold again. You'll find that it's a very small universe when I'm angry with you. I think that this is a really nice turning point of him tending more toward the warmth and the openness that we want. We can't always get the version of things that we want all the time. To, to quote a, a fellow Whovian, Dan Slott, who wrote Amazing Spider-Man for 10 years, if he were not making Peter Parker miserable on a regular basis and doing things that the fandom were not up in arms about, then there would be nothing for Peter Parker to overcome. And in the same respect, this is someone who lives many lives and learns some of the same lessons over, and it's a matter of how we learn those lessons anew in somewhat different ways or from a slightly different angle. Mm. One of the interesting things about this moment is that, you know, you described it uh, as a 24-year date, which is <laughs> a pretty apt way of putting it. Uh, it's it's probably the longest amount of time that the Doctor and, and River have spent together because they meet like ships passing in the night, essentially. Time travel, we keep meeting in the wrong order. I'm curious to know how you feel about 
the doctor staying put and what that means for the character, because staying put is not often one of his defining actions. That's another layer that makes it really interesting to me, honestly. Even though this is someone who has lived thousands of years, that's one of the defining traits. And I like diversions from what you're used to. You know, the doctor's always on the run, always on the run. And just that speaks to what the doctor views this relationship as. Mm. That even though in the span of the doctor's life, 24 years is not that long. And there are probably other cases where other extended stretches of time that we mere mortals would think were expansive uh, amounts of time would similarly be blinks to the doctor. But the glimpses into the doctor's life that we get, it is usually emphasized, like you said, that the doctor is constantly going, 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 not staying in one place for too long. Doctor's always on the lam, on the run. And it's something that, that makes me think about other times, other places, other reasons that the doctor has stayed put for somewhere longer than it took to triage the situation. Yeah, it's interesting because I think I think narratively, you know, Im- immediately after the Husbands of River Song, we see the Doctor traveling with Nardole in. Fact, me babies, why I reassembled you? No, sir, that's not the reason. The is it? return of Doctor Mysterio. But you cut me out of Hydroflex because you were worried you'd be lonely. That's kind of later no put why, into context as a oh. short trip that the Doctor's doing during a second period of long stability, where he's a professor at a university for some amount of time, <laughs> looking after another one of his great loves which happens to be Missy in, uh, in a vault. Why have you got a woman locked in a vault? Because even I think that's weird and I've been attacked by a puddle. Yeah, and, and that, it does kind of stick out in terms of, this, you know, since 2005, this is the only, I guess you would say, protracted period of time where we're given to understand that the Doctor has kind of stayed butt somewhere. And then right after that, when Chris Chibnall takes over the show, he doesn't really take that part of the show and run with it, but he does kind of give the Doctor mm-hmm. a new family, a new... My fam. A new fam. Oh, I should say, don't spoil anything from that series for me because I've watched the first episode and I'm holding the rest of it oh, okay. because I knew that we would have this expansive wait in between uh, seasons of the show. That is uh, that is a good strategy. <laughs> there's, some, there's some good stuff in there waiting for you. Once they announce a date, I'll lay out a plan uh, <laughs> as to how I'm going to proceed. One of the things that I've been asking people, I've been kind of throwing forward to say, you know, how does this connect to something in the new series or something that you'd like to see more of from the new series, but you're almost in a vacuum. I mean, you, you said you've seen the premiere, but... Uh, yeah, I've seen the premiere and, yeah. and I mean, to that end... Uh, uh, I feel like, you know, without speaking to the development of that of that series, which I can't, I think it's interesting that this being kind of the midpoint of Capaldi's arc and where Capaldi's arc ends leaves us at this revival of the doctor that we had in the 60s and 70s with multiple companions and a team and more about, you know, let's bring people on. Let's see what's out there. Let's stop being so isolationist. Let's put ourselves out there. That is so much of what excites me about the prospect of watching the rest of the Jodie Whittaker episodes that that exist so far. And, uh, And one of the reasons that, you know, when I really need to escape space and time, I feel great about what I'm jumping into because every single thing uh, about how I am anticipating the series playing out is is all about those promo images they had of Jodie Whittaker just, you know, staring off into the expanse <laughs> with this when you say places to go. bright, full, open-eyed smile. Where to? I think that's a really great place for this franchise to be in this time in history. Everywhere. 
when so many people, not just in the UK, are dealing with so much dark, terrible, impossible seeming stuff. It's really lovely that even though they're on a production hold until whenever, mm-hmm. the current state of Doctor Who is peering off into the possible. And I think that's that's really great. Now, I'm going to back up a bit and ask you, what's your history with Doctor Who? So my first experience with Doctor Who was watching KERA PBS in Dallas, Texas as a kid. I was up late at night. The memory tells me that it was a, it was a Tom Baker episode because I remember the scarf and it terrified me. <laughs> it was too real. Digital effects would have helped very young me deal with this kind of scary looking guy with these big bug out eyes being chased by stuff and other people being chased by stuff. It's really very fuzzy. I had virtually no other contact with Doctor Who until the Tenant episodes and the Eccleston episodes started airing on PBS in the States. I was still an undergrad. You know, watching TV was dicey and DVRs were still relatively new and not exactly in a college kid's budget. Mm. And I, I caught bits and pieces here and there. And one of the earliest Tenant episodes I remember seeing... I'm a time traveler. I point and laugh for archaeologists. ...was ah. Silence in the Library. Professor Riversong. Archaeologist. Yeah, it was just an assortment of stuff. And then I picked up Matt Smith from the start. And as my then partner was hooked on Matt Smith, I was like, this is nice and everything, but I'd like to dip into the stuff that came before. And so uh, thanks to the radical cheapening of DVDs and access and that sort of thing, by that time, I was able to plow through all of Eccleston and all of Tennant kind of on my own. Kind of a question I had in mind related to this moment that maybe kind of a non-question since your primary entry into, into Doctor Who was through the new series. And whether you're a new series person or a classic series person can kind of color the way you answer this question is the place of romance in Doctor Who. Because hmm. this is a very, it's one of the most romantic scenes in Doctor Who, I, I would probably say. And there's a variety of different opinions as to whether that belongs in Doctor Who with regard to the character of the Doctor or period. But if you fell in love with the show through the new series, then I, I presume that's not much of an issue for you, as it isn't for me. Well, I'm also kind of an old fuddy-duddy about various things, and, and okay, you can break and bend the rules, but what is it that makes a thing what the thing is? Mm. And I think that's probably where a bunch of really super pedantic classic who don't come at me on the internet, guys. A, a lot of really pedantic old who fans come from in saying, well, that's just not a thing. It's just not how things are. The thing about a show that is going to last the test of time. It has to be able to be for everyone. It has to be able to play with the entire range of human emotion. Mm. And the thing I find fascinating about the new Who doctor grappling with the notion of romance and love and so on is honestly almost like a response to trauma. What happened? And the many things that come from the period before... There was a war and we lost. ...the 2005 reset. Well, okay. And to the extent that I would say much more Matt Smith's Doctor... And Dr. Rivers ...plays with, with being romanceable. Oh, you bad, bad girl. What trouble have you got for me this time? I think that Capaldi's 12th Doctor and this moment, as romantic as it is, also very firmly leaves the door open for everyone to be happy, if that makes sense. The people who desperately ship the Doctor and desperately ship people uh, with other people... I'm not one of those people, but I respect them. And I respect their having an investment and having a very deep-seated, passionate feeling about what they see in a show. Because that's what so many of us see, whether we are marginalized people of various kinds or or people who, who just do not feel as seen in real life. I love that this deeply romantic, deeply heartfelt, passionate moment 
leaves open two doors at the same time, that the doctor is a completely asexual alien who gets it. People fall in love with him, but that's just not who the doctor is. And then the other door, which is 24 years of of sting scale tantric sex. (laughs) Both are left completely up to the diaspora of people who watch and love Doctor Who. And I think that's very fair. Right. Whether it is romance, whether it is super scary stuff, whether it is super family friendly stuff, the doctor has lived many lives and we should be able to experience many aspects of life through this show. And the proportion is going to change forever and ever. Yeah. I mean, I find it interesting, like you say, there's there's a sort of ambiguity where you could read the doctor as asexual even in this scene because the addition of kissing into Doctor Who which kind of happened in uh, Paul McGann's 96 TV movie. The Doctor! God! (laughs) Now do that again. Oh, oh, I did see that. I saw that when it aired. Oh, yeah, really? And I had no idea idea what was going on. You weren't watching the uh, episode of Roseanne that it was up against? No, no, not a fan of Roseanne. Oh, well, uh, I think most people were watching Roseanne, which is why that never went to series. Yeah, I was was into the weird sci-fi thing that was on Fox. But yeah, um, it's interesting that there's no kiss in this scene because... It seems as though one belongs, but its omission is kind of conspicuous, which yeah. it's an interesting kind of concession to the notion of the Doctor as potentially being asexual, not only to characterize him as an alien, but also as perhaps even a bone thrown to fans of the show who may be asexual or aromantic and may yeah. like to have that reading of the character as well for them. Yeah, as much as people try to assail Moffat, he is such an incredibly talented writer and showrunner and architect of long arc stories within the ridiculous constraints that, for whatever reason, the BBC puts on one of its biggest earning series. Mm. He would not have written it this way and would not have put it together this way if he didn't want those vagaries in there. And I think the lack of a kiss is wonderful on two fronts because whether it's, like you said, it leaves open the interpretation thing that I mentioned earlier, or more than that, it speaks even more to the level of this relationship between the Doctor and Irver that we don't need to see that. Mm. They don't need to do that necessarily for it to properly seal what this relationship is and define it and put labels on it. This relationship is allowed to be what it is whatever that is. Mm. This is far and away one of my favorite episodes of Doctor Who. When you love the Doctor, it's like loving the stars themselves. You don't expect a sunset to admire you back. And if I have- It's not just River getting to unburden herself with talking about falling in love with the sunset or uh, or the stars, which is just, just beautifully poetic language. Like, Stephen Moffat, take me on a date. Like, take me for dinner in a movie, man. You won me over. Like, it's just beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And the doctor face acting against that. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, it's... Hello, sweetie. Doctor Who has become more cinematic, but this is one of the more cinematic dream state kind of kind of episodes of TV that they've put together under this aegis. And even like the preceding half hour before any of any of that somewhat heavier stuff kicks in, it's just so damn fun. It's like so much fun. Yeah. One of the big themes of the later part of the episode when, like I said, some of the heavier stuff starts to kick in is happily ever after endings, whether there can be endings, whether there can be happily ever after. The Doctor has been characterized sometimes by Moffat as being avoidant of endings, not wanting to stick around and see endings, tearing out the last pages of books, etc. How do you feel about what that says about the Doctor and about what this moment says about how he's evolved or evolving in terms of how he relates to the concept of endings? It's always fascinating when the Doctor is really and truly trapped and does not have an escape from it. Hmm. And as we get in this episode, the Doctor has been spending, since River was was first in the show, avoiding this final moment. 
And because we so rarely see the doctor in this situation, that makes it all the more fascinating as a, as a character study of seeing the doctor trying to wring the most meaningful, positive result out of this, a thing that he was anticipating, a thing that he knew was coming. And when he realizes that this is where he is in the history of his timey-wimey existence, you see it set in and you can read it in Capaldi's performance. And it becomes even more pronounced as he is setting up the restaurant, making the reservation. Mm. It is the doctor being the best agent of, of kindness that he can and literally creating the best date in the history of existence. And that wraps up this week's episode of The Moment. Thanks to Moises Chuyan for joining me this week. You can follow Moises on Twitter at Moises Chu. That's M-O-I-S-E-S-C-H-I-U. You can hear Moises pretty often on The Incomparable Podcast and other shows put out by The Incomparable Network at theincomparable.com. And you can hear some of his own Q&A work with guests at comic conventions over on his own show, Electric Shadow, over at esn.fm slash electricshadow. A bit of business if you're looking for something to do on Saturday, October 12th, 2019, and you can get to Manhattan that day, I highly encourage you to do so because that's where I'll be. Reality Mom, a Doctor Who podcast that is friends with this podcast, is putting on a live show at the Stone Creek Bar and Lounge, and it's going to be good. Find out more at realitybombpodcast.com. And if you're there, please do find me and say hello, because hello is a word that I enjoy hearing. Find more episodes of this show at themomentpod.com. Support us on Patreon, rate us on Apple Podcasts, etc. You know the drill, and you know that I always mention that you can follow the show on Twitter at themomentpod. But this week is a particularly good week to keep an eye on that Twitter feed and other feeds for Doctor Who podcasts, especially if you like podcasts that talk about Doctor Who and you are interested in helping to make the world a better place. We've got something for you. I will have more to say about that on next week's episode. But like I said, in the meantime, keep your eyes on the social meds. That's what I call social media. I'm Tom Dickinson, and I'll be back in a moment.